This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. Ladies and gentlemen, uh... can I please have your attention? Greetings, dear listeners. This is Jonah Goldberg, host of the Remnant Podcast, brought to you by the Dispatch and Dispatch Media. Um, I want to apologize up front. Audio is going to be a little sketchy here. Um, I didn't bring a mic with me, and I'm in a hotel room in Chicago. I'm at the University Club, Chicago Club Show, University Club, whatever they call this place. Um, University Club of Chicago, that's what it is. The ambient street noise is pretty considerable. Um, and I think that's the train going by right now. So it is what it is. I'm here in Chicago because I gave a talk at the University Club uh, for um, the Illinois Policy Institute which is this plucky, uh, principled, um, state-based think tank that is fighting the good fight for sort of uh, free market, sort of conservative slash libertarian urban policy, which, as you can probably imagine, is an uphill task for um, those guys. And um, I'm actually going to leave here to record a podcast um, with the president of IPI in a little bit. Um, and then later on uh, today, I go to Istanbul to meet uh, my lovely bride um, and go on vacation. I haven't decided how totally and completely dark I'm going to be, but don't be surprised if it's pretty uh, dark. Um, I don't mean like, um, you know, Werner Herzog talking about how um, uh, we're all made from, uh, you know, 98% water and 2% of dog meat or something like that dark. I mean, like dark is in not tweeting much or not writing much or, or podcasting and all that kind of stuff. I'm just going to see how things go. Um, but the primary point of this is to go on vacation. And it's funny though. It's one of the things I've just learned about myself is that I, I have a hard time going completely, completely on vacation. I don't like, I mean, obviously the all the stuff with my mom and the hospice and the hospitals and all that um, was stressful and difficult for um, more important reasons. But it's also, it's just, it's, it's not relaxing when I miss deadlines. And I have this constant fear that I will get out of the practice of writing if I don't write regularly. And so, you know, everybody was at the dispatch was great. You know, take all the time you need, you know, we'll cover for you, blah, 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 blah. And obviously it's all well-intentioned and generous and sweet and all that kind of stuff. But at the same time, it's just hard for me. So um, who knows what I'll write. But um, I figure I'm also been just sort of, just be honest with people. I've had a real hard time in the last couple of months, particularly the last month, caring as much about politics as I'm supposed to and as I need to for 
on the, the, the life I have chosen. Um, I assume I'll get back into it, um, but I'm just kind of burnt out on it. And um, we talked about this a little bit on the Dispatch podcast yesterday. The uh, um, This Twitter story, to me, it's a little bit like, um, it's, a, it's a little deja vu-y of the, uh, the Russia collusion thing. I spent most of the Trump presidency almost never writing about it. Um, pro war con, you know, whatever. Um, in part because I just didn't, I, I felt no need to leap into the breach to prematurely defend Trump. Um, and I felt I didn't know enough and nobody knew enough to sort of leap into the breach to prematurely convict Trump. Um, one of the only times I actually remember writing at any length about Trump and the Russia collusion stuff was after the Trump Tower meeting, because as I think I put it at the time, something like, um, you know, I've been fairly agnostic about what happened and what's going on here. And it seems like there are bad actors on all sides and blah, 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 blah. But um, um, one thing is sort of clear now is that whether or not Trump did anything terrible or the Trump campaign did anything terrible with Russia, um, the Trump Tower meeting certainly demonstrates that they were willing to. And then I just sort of stayed quiet about it for a long time. I stayed quiet about Fast and Furious, too. There's some stories where I don't, I really just don't trust the loudest people on either side of it. Um, and this Twitter thing right now, I like Barry Weiss. I trust Barry Weiss. I'm sure what she's, you know, reporting from these Twitter file things is is factually accurate as best as she can ascertain and i and i trust that she's done her due diligence and all that so i'm not criticizing her i'm not criticizing matt taibbi either i'm less of a fan of taibbi's but you know um it sounds like he made the right you know factual concessions when it was required it's just that i find the people bleeding about first amendment violations it, it's one of these amazing mott and bailey kind of things where um, I really noticed it when David had written, David French had written this, uh, this thing for the Atlantic about how, you know, Musk and the, the hardcore Muscophiles, um, Muscovites just don't get the first amendment. You know, originally Elon Musk said that this was a huge violation of the first amendment, um, to take down what ultimately it sounds like were, you know, tweets of nude Hunter Biden um, and other stuff like that because the Biden campaign asked them to. And, you know, David as David and like a lot of other people pointed out, Joe Biden wasn't president. This wasn't a gov the government doing anything. Um, it was a campaign making what it, at least the campaign thought were reasonable requests. I certainly, if it's, if we're just talking about junk picks, I think it is a reasonable request. In fact, you shouldn't have to wait for the Biden campaign to ask because those kinds of picks violate Twitter's own policy. But there's no, there's just no first amendment issue there um, because it's not the government suppressing anything. It's a private entity. And, um, you know, but you get Tucker talking about how this might be the worst violation of the first amendment, uh, you know, in American history or in our lifetimes or some garbage like that. And it's all such sucker bait, you know? And anyway, so David writes this thing about, you know, how the first amendment wasn't violated. And all of these people who said the first amendment was violated, all of a sudden move the goalposts 
and accuse David of not getting it, quote unquote, right? Because the issue here isn't technically the First Amendment. It's First Amendment principles or free speech principles that are being violated. Now, if that's what you believe, say that at the outset. Don't scream this is a huge violation of the First Amendment, an egregious violation of the Constitution, when you don't actually mean and aren't willing to defend the claim that it has anything to do with the Constitution. Um, and to sort of like, it was it was just really interesting to see how many people were just getting mad at David for pointing out the obvious and clear facts um, that made that exposed the extreme rhetoric about this stuff as, as incorrect. Um, and anyway, so like, like I find the people who are getting their dresses over their heads about this, setting their hair on fire about how this is outrageous. Ted Cruz talking about how people might have to go to jail. It's, it's just all such deliberate garbage and nonsense. Um, and at the same time, Twitter did bad things, it seems to me. Again, I haven't waded as deep into this as some people have. Um, but and just because we basically knew they were doing bad things and this proves they were doing bad things um, uh, doesn't mean it's not bad. And when I say bad, I got to be really careful here because it's not I'm not outraged by it. You know, I mean, if you told me that the New York Times deliberately and intentionally downplays news that's good for Republicans, I would have said, um, I think the technical term for that is duh, right? Um, the fact that the Twitter algorithm de-amplified or, you know, whatever, certain right-wingers, um, particularly on stuff like COVID, just doesn't shock me. And it's something everyone was alleging all the time. It, it, it doesn't wildly offend me in the sense that maybe that's my fault for, for just sort of assuming that this kind of thing goes on. But it's a big private company run by a lot of very liberal people. Once you get into this uh, mindset that says not only are you content moderation, which you have to do, which Elon Musk does, which everybody does. Otherwise, you're just going to get buried in gross porn and, and, and neo-Nazi stuff, right? Everybody does some content moderation. Um, but once you decide that your, you know, fairly boutique bubble, um, woke uh, values are the objective truth. And if anybody violates them or contradicts them, um, that will cause violence. You're going to get into the unreasonable, um, I don't want to use the, the word censorship, but you know, the, un, the, the unreasonable biased content moderation game. And that seems like exactly what Twitter did. The idea that the Babylon Bee, this guy, Yale Roth, the old Roth, who's the safety and community and, 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 um, you know, breakfast taco director or whatever at, at Twitter, the idea that the Babylon B had to be banned or shadow banned or censored or deamplified or throttled back or whatever the right words are, um, because they were in the business of misgendering people and that creates violence. I get the argument that mis like quote unquote misgendering people, um, which again is a pretty Orwellian use of language because what it's doing is saying that pointing to someone's objective biological sex is misgendering if the person rejects their own biological sex. So anyway, there are games to be done there. 
but uh, it is just so boutique and niche and arrogant um, to think in those terms that that you are the ultimate judge of what is acceptable speech. And again, they are the judge of what's acceptable speech on their platform, but they what they think are easy cases are not easy cases. Um, I, and anyway, I, I'm, I'm babbling here because it is very frustrating to talk about. It's because I find that everybody wants to make this into a much bigger issue than it actually is. Most people don't use Twitter. I think it's like one in five Americans are on Twitter and something like 97% of the political tweets are done by 3% of Twitter users. And the idea like that, that Twitter is at the heart and soul of American democracy, that it is the battle space for whether or not we survive as a republic is just so blinkered and myopic and, and silly to me. Um, I'm not saying Twitter doesn't matter. I'm on Twitter, yada, yada, yada. But just, and also like the, you know, David made this point on advisory opinions, but it's, it's really easy to know where you come down on most things if you stay consistent regardless of whether or not um, it's good for the power of your quote unquote side. And so, you know, you have a huge number, Christian Schneider, our friend Christian Schneider wrote a good piece about this over at, the, at NR. You have a huge number of people who on the one hand are losing their minds about how Twitter reserved the right to decide what content was going to be on its site and that's outrageous, but at the same time are taking the side of the web designer in 303 Creative who doesn't want to do uh, websites um, celebrating gay marriage. Now, people like me think the web designer and Twitter have the exact same right to run uh, their business the way that they want a business and express the ideas that they want to express without government intervention. And... Um, it is amazing how convoluted and contradictory people are about this kind of stuff where they, you know, the left wants to compel, you know, the wedding cake baker and the 303 web design person into uh, speech that they don't want to speak, essentially, right? Expression that they don't want to express. But they're absolutely in favor of Twitter being able to restrain speech the way that they want to restrain it. I'm in favor of everybody being responsible for their own stuff. You know, me and Steve and the editors of the dispatch, we are responsible for what's on, uh, the, at the dispatch. And, uh, we try very, very hard not to ban people from comments. Um, and it helps that you have to be a member to comment, but we recognize that sometimes, and I've known this for gosh, the amount of time I spent thinking and talking about comment sections at NR, we know that a very small number of people can ruin the comment sections for everybody. And so sometimes you have to make tough decisions about who you're going to let comment and who you're not and all that kind of thing. And the same thing goes for Twitter. Same thing goes for Apple's App Store. I'm not saying that there aren't special considerations at special times, but broadly speaking, if you if you just say you're you're in favor of First Amendment principles, it's pretty easy to know where you come out on this kind of stuff. But if you're, um, if you love screaming about the First Amendment, 
when it's a vict- when the First Amendment will help you in a um, in a political battle, but you're against the First Amendment when it'll hurt you in a political battle. You're not really for the First Amendment. And what's weird about this for me is that I have always been, you know, uh, from a from very early on, I have always been more sympathetic to notions of censorship than a lot of my friends. Now, the stuff I'm I'm in favor, I've always been in favor of censoring has been things like pornography. And even then, I'm not saying it's a total ban. I'm just saying that it, it should be harder to reach for kids and all of that kind of thing. And and frankly, the thing, you know, prior to the internet, local censorship didn't bother me. All you know, Even more extreme local censorship didn't bother me all of that much. But the internet makes sort of local censorship a, a sort of a, a, an impossible concept. Anyway, I, I just find this, I find the whole thing really frustrating and annoying. And people are yelling at me, why aren't you signing off on this? Or why are you angrier? And it's like, tell me exactly, exactly what you want me to be angry about. Um, and maybe I'll be angry about it. But for right now, um, I just find it almost impossible to talk about this. As you can tell, I'm from Fring and all that. It's also very early in the morning here. I just find the whole debate so self-serving, so self-indulgent, so arrogant, and really very elitist. I mean, I know uh, we're supposed, you know, if you listen to people like Kevin Roberts um, with the Heritage Foundation, elites are the people he disagrees with, Um, you know. um, But if you are, if you even know what the term shadow banning means, you are probably um, part of this elite conversation. And if you consider Twitter to be the most important communications medium in your life, you are, you know, a, a part of a very fringe group in American life. Um, and I just find, so I just find the whole thing pretty exhausting. Anyway, okay, what else to talk about? I don't know. All right, so I'm going to Istanbul tonight. Um, I'm very excited about it. It's going to be a long 10-hour flight, red eye, so I don't get there till Saturday in the afternoon, late afternoon. I, I know, I'll tell you a story. So I haven't been to Istanbul since I was, I don't know, 21 years old, something like that. Um, uh, and there's going to be, there's going to be, there are going to be some uh, expletives, um, or at least one when I tell the story. So I was living in Prague teaching English and me and this guy, I'll just say Bob, um, I'm not going to say anything bad about him. He's a really nice guy, but I didn't know very well. He was a really good friend of a friend. And for whatever reason, we were like the only two people that we knew of our group of expats left in Prague. Um, and I wanted to go on an adventure. I knew I was going to be heading home at some point. Um, and so Bob was like, I'll go. And so we went to the train station and we originally, I think we originally planned to go to Paris, but it was so far away um, and so expensive. And we had to wait, we'd have to wait like 10 hours for the train or whatever. For whatever reason, we ruled out Paris. And then I saw on the board, Istanbul. I was like, dude, let's go to Istanbul. And um, he was into it. So we bought tickets to Istanbul and got on the train. The train ride was, I want to say, 30 hours. Um, In part because first night we had to um, sleep in Budapest. And... um, you know, you get off the train in Budapest. I don't know if this is still the case now. I don't know if I would trust it now. But back then, people would just meet you on the platform and ask you if you wanted to rent a room for the night. And so uh, me and Bob, we rented uh, two rooms um, in this apartment in Budapest. And then uh, first thing in the morning, we got back on the train. And 
headed to uh, headed towards Istanbul. And it was one of the best road trips of my life. It was it was the best road trip of my life, I think. Um, so in, after Budapest, uh, we met these two British, either right before Budapest, I guess it was after Budapest, we met these two British students who had been studying in, uh, in Hungary and were also going to Istanbul. And they befriended this very sketchy Pakistani guy, um, young guy who was going to Istanbul, I think to like, and then he was going to switch trains and head eventually head back to Karachi. Um, so a lot of trains for this guy. When we asked him what he did, he would, he said he had been in Europe for six months or something like that. And selling his wares and we never knew what the wares were and he had one small you know shoulder duffel to his name and then we met this other guy who was half british half australian or dual citizenship whatever and if you've ever spent a lot of time backpacking or anything in europe or pretty much anywhere you probably know this aussies travel i mean they do this sort of uh, extended um australian rum springer where they just wander the earth like cane after college. So this guy was only going to Istanbul so he could switch trains and go to Cairo so he could get the right visas to go, I think, to Syria. And he was all on his own. Um, pretty impressive. So we became kind of a, a buddy-buddy group. And at one point, heading into... Oh, I, I left out one, one story. At one point, it was just Bob and I hanging out, and um, we were heading into S former Yugoslavia, um, into Belgrade. And uh, that night, the train was absolutely packed. It was full of, um, you know, we called them gypsies. I know you're supposed to call them um, um, Romanche or whatever, uh, but it was full of them. And... Uh, um, the train stops in the woods at like 11 o'clock, 12 o'clock at night and dudes with machine guns come on the train and they make every one of the, of the gypsies get off the train. Bob and I, who had been sharing one of those flap down seats in the hallway and, and trying to sleep with our backs, holding each other up back to back. Um, we also grabbed one of the big cat, one of the big, you know, cabins or rooms or whatever. And, um, and spread out. We're like, this is great. You know, I wonder how long it's going to take them to check their papers before they let them back on. Maybe we can get some sleep. And while we're talking about it, just assuming they're going to be brought back on, the train just takes off. And I've still, to this day, I have no idea what happened with those people. I feel like I would have heard if there'd been some massacre or something, but it was really weird. And Belgrade was really cool. We spent half a day walking around in Belgrade. Um, it's weird. There's this, I'm sure there's some French or existential term for this, but you know, there's this, yeah, I'm sure, I'm sure a lot of people kind of know what I'm getting at this kind of feeling. You have this feeling where you see, I don't know, a homeless person or you're sitting next to someone in an airport or whatever it is, right? Somebody who's made very, very different life choices than you have, or grew up in a very, very different context than you have. And you think about how weird it is that their worlds are so alien from your world and that when you go back to your life, you fit in with your friends and your people and your institutions, but this person would stick out and all that kind of thing. Anyway, so it's a strange sort of 
Um, feeling it's a little bit like in Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy, that feeling you get when you meet someone from very, very far away. Anyway, I remember having this really powerful sense of this um, walking around in Belgrade where we see people my age um, in what were still at the time very sort of Dr. Zhivago Russian style uniforms on train platforms, you know, with head bandages and eye patches and crutches, um, smoking cigarettes. These were wounded people being rotated and others being rotated from whatever front the, the Serbians were fighting at the time. And it just felt like I'd walked onto a movie set. And it was, it was just this really palpable, weird feeling about how different the lives of these people were than, than, than my life was. Anyway, so back to the train. We're on this train, and I think we're heading through Bulgaria. And me and these guys are having a good time. It's fun, whatever. And then um, this Moldavian, uh, I want to say archaeologist, but it might have been paleontologist. But anyway, this Moldavian, uh, Moldavian uh, academic, gets in the car and he doesn't speak any English. And, um, and we start chatting. Um, and it's weird, you know, having, having spent so much time teaching English, there are centers of your brain that reactivate after a while and you can conjure up language that you've kind of forgotten. And so it was kind of wild. This guy brings out uh, the, the Moldavian archeologist guy busts out this giant jug of wine and some like cornbread and starts passing it around and he speaks fluent French and all of a sudden it takes a little work and there are a lot of hand gestures but me and Bob and these other guys we start speaking French too um not great not super literary French but enough French to understand it was really weird I didn't think I had French in me we're having this great time we're laughing we're passing around the wine um he had you know he takes out the jug of wine and the cornbread and this like so, you know, those, those metal, uh, you know, industrial cups, um, that have like the ceramic around them. He takes that out and cleans it out with his shirt and pours a jug of wine, pours the wine in it, slurpy and we're passing around and reading Corbin. We're speaking French and I'm just like so freaked out. Like I can speak French cause I, I can't speak French. I failed French in high school and, um, and it's a good time. And then, uh, all of a sudden, the door slides open to our, our, our compartment and this really stern looking dude, Middle Eastern looking dude in a dark suit walks in and, uh, and like no respect for personal space, just sits down between a bunch of us. And, um, and it was kind of a buzzkill, kind of ruined the vibe. And Bob, Bob and I go back to sort of quietly talking to each other the two British guys are talking to their, you know, amongst themselves or just reading or whatever. And everything comes down. But the Moldavian archeologist guy is like, screw that. We were having fun. And he pours a big glurgly cup of uh, wine and hands it to the, and, and gestures to uh, the stranger who just came in offering him the, the cup. And the guy just glares at him sort of like really had these great sort of soup Nazi from Seinfeld kind of glare. And he, stares at him and says, no, no. And old David doesn't care. And he just shoves it back in his face and says, no, go, go, or whatever in French. And the guy goes, I am Persian. I am Persian. And Bob and I'm like, oh, we know what Persia is. Persia's Iran. Okay. So, you know, he doesn't drink. That's fine. And um, 
Moldavian guy just doesn't care. And he just, he just keeps offering it to him. And this seems to like go on for a million years, sort of like the story. And then the Persian guy, the Persian, the Persian stranger screams, Khomeini, Khomeini. And we're like, oof. And like now my body language is really like I'm all curled up and looking out the window. And again, Moldavian guy is totally unfazed. <laughs> he just keeps the cup pointed at him. And then all of a sudden, so the Persian guy grabs the cup. And I was sure he was going to throw the wine in the Moldavian guy's face. And he, and he, he looks at me, looks at Bob, looks at our friends, looks back at the Moldavian stares at all of us with this death stare, and then his face just melts, and he yells, ah, f*** Khomeini. And he takes a big swig of the, swig of the wine, and turns out uh, he speaks English. Either he or his brother is a karate instructor in Denmark, and he was visiting, and blah, 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 and, and we just start talking and, and, and drink wine and eat cornbread with the, the Khomeini guy. Um, and then, so anyway, we pull into... Istanbul and the Pakistani guy, the mysterious Pakistani guy has told um, the British kids that um, he can get us a great deal on a hotel. And um, we're like, okay, sure. You know, we're all there on a budget. That's fine. And so he walks us through the, uh, the back, you know, alleys and streets of Istanbul, which is a real sensory overload if you've been, spent the previous several months in Prague um, or pretty much the previous, you know, several months anywhere other than someplace like Istanbul. You know, so we're carrying our luggage and our bags through, this, through the streets and getting jostled or whatever. And it's a long walk and we're tired and we stink. Um, and we finally get to this uh, pretty shabby looking building. And there's a guy out front and he starts talking to the Pakistani guy and they start arguing and arguing and arguing. And I'm just like getting really annoyed. And I'm like, dude, what's all this about? You know, what's the holdup? And he said, and the Pakistani guy explains that the last time he stayed here, he charged a different rate. But now because uh, it's four white guys from, you know, Europe and America, he wants to charge more and the Pakistani guy's outraged by this. And I was like, well, like how much more? And it turns out that like the last time the Pakistani guy stayed there, it was something like 80 cents a night. And now this guy wants to charge us like a buck 50 a night, a person. <laughs> and, and I'm like, dude, we will pay this. It's fine. Um, and then anyway, we get up to the room and it turns out we were wildly overcharged because it was grim. It was five sort of like uh, Ottoman era metal barracks cots um, with thin, let's just say less than perfectly clean mattresses. And um, the one window is a giant window, you know, that opens like two double doors into the room. Um, and I, you look up above the window and there was this massive, gross, brown, greasy stain above the window on the ceiling. And uh, we figured out that the guy who's selling fried fish on a grill on the street was set up right below the window. And so for years, the greasy smoke would billow in and accumulate soot and stuff on the ceiling of the hotel room. 
Um, and of course, it had a Turkish toilet. For those of you who don't know, Turkish toilet is um, what many in the West simply call a hole in the floor. And um, and the the guy who was going to Syria, uh, he taught us an interesting trick, a good trick. He said that when he stays in places like this, he says, take one of your own T-shirts and use it as a pillowcase. And apparently that minimizes um, the chances you'll get head lice and that kind of thing. And so um, we were too tired to go someplace else. We didn't want to insult the Pakistani guy. But the next morning, Bob and I were like, we are literally willing to spend 10 times as much <laughs> on a hotel room. And so we stayed at some youth hostel that was like 15 bucks a night or something like that. And clean with normal toilets and, and all the rest. Great. Oh, last, last little bit is like, um, so Bob was this really great guy. He was a former um, city manager of a town in Florida and he ran some uh, cinema draft houses and all that kind of thing. And he got into Prague. He saw Václav Havel speak um, to Congress and he was like, we need Americans to come and teach us about democracy and whatnot. And Bob was like in Prague a couple of weeks later or something like that. And so he'd been there a lot longer than me. And, um, uh, and he was a, bit, a little bit older than me. And I mean, he was actually a good deal older than me. Um, I wonder if he's where he is these days. Anyway, um, uh, we just loved walking around Istanbul because you got to remember in Prague, the decades of communism do weird things to countries and cultures. And the, I, there, there was, it was not a consumer culture in Prague when I was there. People like Matt Welsh, I'm sure can tell you a lot more. Matt Welsh from over at Reason, he was there for a long time. He started a newspaper over there, Prognosis. Um, and, uh, but when, uh, I'll give you an example. Um, our favorite restaurant, I don't know what it was called, but in Prague, we called it the pork knee place, as in the knee of a pig, because when you ordered this, you could order a whole like haunch of a pig that had been slow roasted for, for I, I don't know how long, but it just fell off the bone. And you got basically a small sword and a small pitchfork instead of a knife and fork to eat it. And it was awesome. And it pinged all of my D&D kind of stuff. And um and it was a popular restaurant. But um, the thing is, is like, if you, you had to make a reservation and if you, I, I, it was amazing. If you missed the, if you were late for the reservation by like more than like 10 minutes, they wouldn't seat you. Now that happens in restaurants in the West all the time. Um, but the amazing thing at this restaurant was they wouldn't seat anybody else either. They would just put the chairs up on that table and be like, yay, one fewer tables that we have to service tonight. That was like the communist mindset that was all over the place. Um, it was, it was, it was disappearing fast in Prague, but like not so fast that you didn't see examples of it all over the place where people just did not care about the customer, did not care really about unless there was a way to make gratuities and they didn't care about profits. And, um, uh, and then, and everything was gray and, you know, very hard to find fresh vegetables and all that kind of stuff. There are things in cans and, you know, lots of pickled this and, you know, whatever. And then, um, 
you get to Istanbul and the major d's of every restaurant are begging you to come in because they have the finest this and the best that. And everybody is like, it's such, with such a more commercial culture where people are begging you to come into their store, look around, all that kind of stuff. Complete opposite. It was just really just this amazing um, uh, dichotomy. And then, so one night, uh, Bob and I go to dinner at this seafood place. We had a nice dinner. There's this Turkish booze that I hate. It's basically like ouzo, um, really strong licorice anise kind of flavor. But, you know, when in Rome. And we were winding down dinner when this big group of men came in at another table and they just were ordering up, you know, a feast for themselves and um, and laughing, being really loud. And uh, they um, started singing. And they sang something and then somebody else sang something and, and, and all in Turkish, obviously. And it was just really a lot of fun. And we applauded and they sent us drinks because we applauded or whatever. And then turns out Bob, who grew up in like Southern Baptist churches or something like that, um, had a great voice. And um, he sang, uh, what is it, you know, Swing Low, Sweet Chariot and really just knocked it out of the park. And the Turkish guys all get up from their table and they swarm over to us and they start hugging Bob and they start calling him beautiful music man. And, um, they drag us over to their table and then we all start dancing and doing shots of this crazy booze till like four in the morning. And, um, I'll never forget the really fascinating thing was at one point, the guy who spoke the best English we had been chatting, um, he takes out his business card and does this, a little swirl on the back of the business card. And it was the, I, I don't know what you go, the ichthyus fish, you know, the, the Jesus fish on the back of cars. It was just a little swirl of a ballpoint pen, but he was telling us he was Christian or he was telling us that he was eager to work with Christians. I don't know, but it was just such a really cool throwback to, I mean, it's kind of sad that it's necessary to do that, but you know what I mean? It was just like, that was the kind of thing where, um, you read about in history books that you needed to sort of sub Rosa, you know, do that kind of thing, draw, you know, draw the fish in the dirt with your toe kind of thing, or on the back of your, you know, electronics store business card. Anyway, long story short, but it wasn't about politics. Um, and, um, I don't know what else is there to really talk about. Um, we don't always have to go super long. If the spirit moves me, you know, one of the reasons why I'm reserving the right to, at least do some stuff from Istanbul is that, um, or London is that my wife sleeps much later than I do. And so like, I often will have several hours every morning before she even wakes up and I have to bring her coffee. Um, so, you know, maybe I'll do a travel log thing from out there. Do check out, I, I think we had two pretty good podcasts this week. I love talking to Jonathan Roush and obviously it's always great to have Scotland to come on. And, uh, I think that the, uh, the stuff about primaries, I think, is extremely useful. Oh, that's the thing. You know, there's this argument over at NR between Charlie Cook and and Michael Brendan Doherty, and I'm entirely on on Charlie's side on this. You know, Michael, um, I think, is a little too desperate for the sort of populist forces that he's more sympathetic to, um, not to be um, sidelined by talk about electability. And so he wrote this thing about how, you know, it's kind of crazy to talk about how the GOP should, should care about electable candidates. And 
I think he is um, completely wrong about that. And Charlie is right that, of course, the party has to care about electable candidates because if it doesn't care about electable candidates, what else is a party for if not to get its members elected? And um, that doesn't necessarily mean it's the only thing you care about. You know, you can't put up socialists or whatever. Um, But I think that this... This view, you know, like I get a lot of pushback from people about primaries, about why I want to get rid of them and all that kind of stuff. And, you know, they will constantly tell me how it's undemocratic of me. Um, and what I find interesting, this is not aimed at Michael. I love Michael. But what I find really kind of funny is how many of the people who are appalled at the idea of getting rid of primaries tend to be the exact same kind of people who love to point out that um, America is not a democracy, it's a republic. Um, oh, you know, it's funny. So uh, a couple of weeks ago, uh, a listener emailed me, fairly put out that I don't countenance that argument. If I, I had said some negative things about the people who, who make that argument. So let me just explain it very briefly here. Um, a bunch of my, uh, with this one proviso, a bunch of my friends um, including several uh, previous remnant guests, are all working on projects about republicanism. Um, two of them at AI, one of them um, over at Manhattan. And um, I don't want to preemptively say that I, I, I'm not interested in what they're doing because I'm very interested in what they're doing and all that kind of stuff. But the point I just want to make is that that this hard distinction between a republic and a democracy um, I get what people are getting at when, the, when they say that, but if you go back and you look at what a republic meant at the time of the founding, it meant what we would call a democracy. Um, now there are, um, there are differences between republicanism and democracy and, um, and they have to do with sort of definitions of they have to do with a lot of things, but one of the things they have to do with is definitions of leadership. Um, you know, there's, the, I think in political science, it's this whole thing about representative versus trustee. Um, should congressmen just simply vote the way that the people in their district tell them to vote? Or do they owe, as as, um, as Edmund Burke writes about in his address to the elders of Bristol, um, does he owe them their judgment and, and um and good consideration, right? Um, and it, it's his decision. It's it's representative's decision, the elected leader's rep, you know decision to uh, take the best course of action, even if he thinks his voters are wrong about it, and um, might have might not get reelected, or might have to do a lot of work to explain it to his voters. And that's sort of the trustee model. And the representative model is your, you know, elected leaders are basically remote control cars. Um, and in the Republican system, a Republican system, as people t- tend to use the phrase, um, it's more about the trustee model. Um, and it's more about um, institutions that channel and um, filter and harness and direct democratic energies in, in fruitful directions. And I'm in favor of all that kind of stuff. But my only problem with people who say, you know, we're a republic, not a democracy, is that the founders intended us to be a republic 
But the way you make a republic is to have democracy be central to it. And so it's a kind of a false distinction. But anyway, the funny thing is, is like I'm offering for a very, very small R Republican thing with this getting rid of primary stuff, right? Or at least lowering the importance of primaries because, you know, again, I'm of the view that democracy is what happens between parties, not within parties. And, um, you know, the founders didn't intend there to be parties. They certainly didn't have anything to say about primaries. The idea that primaries are essential to a democracy would be news to everybody in this country prior to like 1972. And it would be news to almost every other democracy around the world. It's not a requirement of a democracy. You know, you do need parties. I mean, although not formally or technically, but it just works out that you do need parties and, and parties plural. If you only have one party, you don't have democracy. And so anyway, obviously, I'm going to be on Charlie's side of this argument because, frankly, other than the sort I mean, this is a point Jonathan Rausch made when we were talking, you know, primaries have uses to sort of see how good a politician someone is, how good they are at work in a room or, or, or campaigning. And so, that, you know, that's a valuable thing for a party to know. So, you know, I'm open to the idea that you don't have to get rid of them entirely. You can make them more like the beauty pageants they were. Um for, you know, most of the 20th century. But at the end of the day, the party rises or falls based upon the quality of its candidates. And the idea that just random voters should be able to decide who those candidates are, I just think is a mistake. I just think it's wrong. And I am utterly impervious to charges that I'm being undemocratic when I say this. You know, um, a lot of my friends who are very staunch Catholics um, would utterly reject the idea that church church doctrine should be put up for a vote. Is that undemocratic of them? Well, in one sense, yes. In another sense, of course not, because being democratic means being in favor of democracy means being in favor of democracy for the things that democracy is for. I am not for democracy in the surgical theater. I don't want, you know the cardiac surgeon polling, you know, the room for, you know, where to cut. Um, you know, we don't want generals having a vote about what hill to take. Um, and uh, this idea that because political parties are in the democracy business, that means they have to be democratic, I just think is a category error. Um, and and so invocations of, of, you know, commitment to democracy uh, just, just fall utterly flat with me in this debate um, because I actually think we will improve our democracy by making it more Republican, by having the parties be stronger and less riggable by the most intense activists who do not even represent um, your typical Republican or your typical Democrat. Um, and uh, I leave it at that. Anyway, sorry for that digression. I meant to talk about that before. Um, have a great weekend. Have a great week if you don't hear from me. Um, but you will hear from me again. Oh, and we're going to run this Illinois uh, Policy Institute podcast on, on Tuesday or Wednesday. So there'll be another one with me. But um, at the very least. But other than that, um, I'll talk to you next time.
guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere And each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW group. Void were prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.